We're in a series called The Prodigals. Uh, I met with Pastor Ron about five weeks ago, and I was showing him what I was going to speak about to make sure that he was comfortable with my content. And we talked and talked, and we questioned and we questioned, and I had a, a title for a two-part series, and it was kind of cumbersome. And Ryan's looking at it, and he's looking at my material, and he says, Neil, let's do this. Let's do a three-part series. And I'm thinking, you want to preach another one? He said, you preach the first two, I'll preach the third, and let's call the series The Prodigals. And I smiled, because 20 minutes previously, he'd been telling me how demanding sermon preparation is, how demanding it is to be creative, to get titles, to communicate. And I smiled, because, Ryan, you're doing it again. Another series, more creativity. And I smiled also because that's the mark of a good communicator. A communicator doesn't want to speak merely. They want to speak in such a way as their listeners will understand. Now, I know a lot of church planters in North Georgia. You're blessed. You've got the number one guy. He's very, very gifted. Very, very special. So, let me, let me start this morning with a question. Did you miss it? Did you miss it? Not the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, but did you miss it? You probably know what these are, cough drops. From October to March, these are in my automobile. I spend my days driving, having appointments, listening, talking, getting dry throat. And this is in the automobile. Now, usually I pick up one of these cough drops and I'm, I'm sucking on it as I drive and I reach down and I pull out one and I'm, I'm one hand on the steering wheel and the other one on the, on the cough drop and I get it out of there and I crumple it up and I throw it on the floor. Now recently I'm in my study and there were two there and I picked up one and I'm undoing it and I saw something that I had missed. All over those little cough drop papers, there's little sayings. Bet on yourself. Turn can do into did do. After every talk, drop. You've survived tougher than this. Don't sweat the little stuff. Now, I've been chewing in these and sucking in these and never saw that. I missed it. Now, this morning, I'm going to read what is a familiar scripture to many of you. But I've realized in the last several months that I've prepared that even though I know the, the material pretty well, I've missed some important stuff that was there all the time, but I missed it. I blew right back. So this morning, I want to encourage you to try to set aside your preconceived ideas, to try to set aside all of what you think and believe about this passage and just kind of put it over here on the back burner and say, Lord, new eyes, new mind, new thinking. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 15, from verse 11. And for many, you've probably read this before. And he said, that is Jesus said, there was a man 
who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, but is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The child was born in 1989 in Torrance, California. His mother was an American. His father was from England. It was not a happy marriage. A lot of strife, a lot of arguing, a lot of dysfunction. And that boy grew up in that home. And he watched his parents like two cats at each other. Eventually, the relationship disintegrated. There was a divorce, and he was left with his mother. He struggled in high school. He graduated, but it was because they sent him to a school for special education needs. In 2008, he was 19, and he joined the Army. He lasted five weeks of basic training and then got kicked out. 2008, his mother moved to Winchester in South Oregon. He was still living with his mother. He moved with her. He enrolled in Umpqua Community College. In the fall of 2015, he signed up for two classes, English writing and theater. Thursday morning, October 1st, Christopher Harper Mercer strapped on his flak jacket, folded in multiple magazines of ammunition, picked up five pistols and his AR-15 long gun, and set off for college. He parked, 
He walked quickly, determinedly to Snyder Hall. He went down the corridor. He found the English writing classroom. And he shot through the glass door. And he shot the professor in the head and shot him dead. In the fury that followed, he killed eight more students and he injured seven other students. And when the police arrived, there was another hill of gunfire, and at the end of it, he lay dead with his pistols around him. Why did Christopher Harper Mercer do that? The police said that he was full of hate. Other folks said that he was needing meds. And others said, he's just plain crazy. But were those the reasons? He left the suicide note. And in there, one of the sentences said, I expect soon to be welcomed in hell and warmly embraced by the devil. Pretty rough stuff. Why did he do what he did? Because Christopher Harper Mercer lived and breathed and thought in the far country. He lived and thought and talked in the far country. That's what Jesus is dealing with here in Luke 15. He's dealing with the far country and those who live in the far country. And this morning, you need to answer the question. Are you living, thinking, feeling like you are in the far country? I want to give you three simple points this morning. Number one, you are blessed by the Father. You are blessed by the Father. In this parable, we see a a father who's been successful financially. These two brothers had a, an easy, comfortable lifestyle. The father owned real estate. He owned herds and flocks. He had lots of hired servants to do his bidding. And these two boys were his GMs. They were blessed. Now, the father in heaven has blessed you. He has placed you in the world that He has created. A world with towering mountains to climb. Glorious rivers that flow to the ocean. Oceans that carry you from country to country. He's given you places to explore, things to discover. He's given you family and friends and food. Paul says in Romans 1 that all of those things reveal to us the person and the nature of God. And they should draw from our hearts honor to Him and worship of Him and thankfulness to Him. So let's start right there. Are you giving Him honor? 
Are you giving him worship? Do you realize, do you understand, do you rejoice that you are blessed by the Father? I'm not talking about America the beautiful, but I am an American by choice, not by chance. But I'm not talking about America the beautiful. Any place where a creature can put their foot around this world is the result of his handiwork. And should elicit from an Irishman, from an Italian, from an Australian, from Lawrenceville, honor, praise, and worship. You are blessed by the Father. You are still significant to the Father. Even though you sin, even though you are a sinner, even though you are a child of Adam, and even though you know there's a black book on you like there is on me with all of our sins, yet in your sin you are still significant to the Father. Now usually we, we take Luke 15 and we, we see three parables and we tend to deal with them independently, like they're each a standalone story. But if you'll read Luke 15, you'll see that Luke doesn't give them as three independent individual parables. He gives them as one long story that Jesus told in one setting at one time. And there is a progression through this. This is really one story with three chapters. The first chapter is the shepherd. He's a hundred sheep, and he loses one. One out of a hundred. No big deal. He's got 99 more. But that one, that one percent was significant to the shepherd. So significant that he went searching and seeking until he found And then Jesus turns to the widow. Now, here's a widow. She's got 10 silver coins, probably drachmas. A drachma was the wage for a worker for one day. She had 10 of those. That's kind of her her safety net. And she lost one. Now, one for her was not 1%, was 10%. She still had 90% left. But it was significant to her. And she went searching, seeking until she found that coin. Now those two parts, those two chapters, in terms of the number of verses, are very short. And then we come to the father and the two sons. Now there is one son lost. Now Jesus is saying, you can't put value on one son. You can put value on one sheep. You can put value on one drachma, but you can't put value on one son. The value of one son, even a lost son, is amazing in the eyes of the Father. Jesus says, now, when that shepherd finds that sheep, there is joy in heaven. But when the widow finds the coin, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God. He moves from the specific, or the general rather, to the specific. And then we come to the two sons. 
And the lost son is found. You notice Jesus doesn't talk about heaven in that one? But there is joy, isn't there? Where is the joy? It's the Father. It's the Father. Who is the Father? He is the Lord. He is the Lord. He rejoices that a sinner comes home. He rejoices that a sinner comes back. He rejoices that a son is restored. Are you there? You know, when I was in college, I was lost. I was very, 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 very lost. I had been raised without a Bible, raised without church. The only time I heard the name Jesus Christ was in a rude context. When I got to college, I was the typical Hellion. And if my father knew one-tenth of what I did in college, there would be a headstone somewhere in North Ireland with my name on it. But in God's mercy, I was found. Because even in my sin, I was still significant. You are significant. You're not ordinary. You're not common. You're significant. Whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you've got a fine, mature beard like I have, or just growing a scruffy-looking thing, you are significant to the Father. And you are called to come home to the Father. You are called to come home to the Father. This younger son goes to his father and he demands, he demands his inheritance. Now, you get an inheritance when somebody dies. This, this kid comes to Dad, I want it now. I want it all now. Give it to me now. The parable doesn't tell us this, but if this were real life, probably the father would have to sell off some sheep, some goats, some cattle, maybe even some land, to give him his split. And he gets it, and then off he runs with everything he has to the far country. Now, when you and I think far country, we think, well, let's see, what's far? Ireland? Well, that's 6,000 miles. How about India? I've been to India. You get on a flight in New York, and you fly for 19 hours. And that plane is really smelly when you get there. <laughs> India is far. But see, that's how a Gentile thinks. You've got to put your Hebrew hat on. When a Hebrew hears these words, and Jesus was very deliberate in using that phrase. When he said to, to them, this young man went to a far country. To the Hebrew, the far country, that was the Gentiles. That was those who were far from the person, the presence, and the knowledge of God. And Paul picks that up in Ephesians 2. He says, you know, you Ephesians, you are far, there's the word, you are far from God. 
because the Hebrew knows the Gentiles didn't have the word. They didn't have the knowledge. This young man was in the far country. It's a place of spiritual darkness and defiance and disobedience. Jesus says, and there he squandered. The word means to scatter. It means to waste. With reckless living. Now, the reckless living is a compound word in the Greek. It means in debauchery, he wasted. Jesus wants to make sure, and Luke, the writer, wants to make sure they get the point. A life without the Lord is a wasted life. And what happens? Well, he, he burns through it all. And then the famine comes. And he goes and he, he finds somebody to employ him. He becomes a hired servant, a slave. The GM has gone all the way down to needing someone to employ him. And then what does his employer give him to do? Go feed the pigs. How low can a Hebrew go? Pork? You don't want to touch that stuff. That's as low as you get. And verse 17 says, When he came to himself. Now we're Gentiles. We read that. We say, hmm, the light came on. He finally figured it out. Not if you're a Hebrew. If you're a Hebrew and you know your Older Testament, you remember there was a king, a great king. Power and wealth, prestige. And he said to himself, what a good boy am I. I did this. And the Lord smote him and drove him out of the palace into the fields. And he lived in the fields like a wild animal until he came to himself. Wow. What does it mean to come to yourself? It means to recognize your sin. It means to recognize his person, his power, his holiness. And when that happens, then you're in your right mind. And then you're in your right life. And the son says, you know, look at me. Look at my tattered rags. Look at my smelly body. I've got nothing to eat. I'd, I'd like to eat the paws that I'm feeding these Gentile pigs. You know what I ought to do? Now, get the warning. I ought to go back to my father and see if he won't have me as one of his hired servants. Now, he begins to prepare in verse 18 the speech he's going to make. He's going to say to his father, Father, I am not worthy to be your son. In the Greek, that's a phrase. The key word is a compound word. It's the word that means son, and then in the front of it is the letter alpha. When you put an alpha in front of a word in Greek, that's called the deprivative alpha. It denies what the other word is. I am not son. Not son, all in one word. 
He's going to go to his father. He's going to say, Father, I am not son. That's who I am. I'm not son. And maybe if somewhere you could find it in your heart. Maybe you could, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. Maybe you could make me like one of the guys that work the flocks. Now, I, in the first century Palestine, there was a tradition. It's called the ceremony of the Kezazah. And that ceremony was applied to a young man like here. If a young man demanded his inheritance while his father was alive, he was saying to his dad, you're worth nothing than the money you owe me. Give it to me. And if that young man went and squandered that money, and obviously they've seen this happen before, if that young man squandered that money, wasted that inheritance, then he was scum. But if that Hebrew young man went and wasted his money by giving it to Gentiles, he was scum of the scum. And if he then decided to come home, come back, the ceremony of the Kezazah demanded that when the news came to the father that your son is returning, that ceremony demanded that the father remain in the house and let that boy come and let him grovel before his father. And then the villagers would take him outside. They would take a big clay pot and they would break it and crush it in front of him. They would tear off part of his clothing and throw it on top of that broken clay pot, ceremonially saying to him, you're as useful as a broken, crushed clay pot. You're as filthy as the rags we just threw in it. You're not a son. You've become scum. You're cut out of the family. You're disinherited. Now, the listeners, the disciples, the Pharisees, the village people, all knew that ceremony. And now Jesus comes and says, you know what? When a sinner comes home, the father doesn't stay in the house and make the son grovel. And the father does not permit the villagers to take him outside and do that to the clay pot and to his shirt. That's not how the Father in heaven responds to a sinner who comes home. See, this Father, apparently, maybe day after day after day after week after week after month after month, had gone outside. He'd looked down that dusty road to see if maybe today he was coming home. And in the parable, when he did come home, the father didn't stay in the house. No. The father rushed down that road, grabbed that stinky, smelly, unkempt-looking man. He embraced him. He hugged him. He kissed him. And then the son started to, to, to give the speech that he prepared. The father said, I don't want to hear it. 
get these filthy clothes off him, hose him down, put the best robe on him, cover his filthy rags of sin with the righteous robe that the Father in heaven provides through Christ. Put the ring on his finger, the ring that says, you're mine, the ring that says, you're in this family, the ring that says, you're special and privileged in my family. And my goodness, look at his feet. He's barefoot. Slaves go barefoot. Bring shoes and put them on my son. The father, Jesus says, had compassion. Beautiful word. It's used by Paul when he writes to Philemon and he says, Onesimus, your former slave, the guy that stole money from you, and then used that to, to underwrite a trip to Rome, spend it all there. Well, I'm sending it back to you. He's come to Christ. He's not just your slave anymore. He now is your brother in Christ. And I want you to respond to him with splankna, compassion, with bowels of mercy and grace and love and affection. I want you to welcome him back. Matthew says Jesus saw the crowds. He said, you know what? They're like sheep without a shepherd, and I feel for them splankna, love, mercy, grace. I long to take them in my arms. I long to pull them close to my heart and love them and protect them. And Jesus says, the Father here is feeling exactly like that with incredible, deep compassion. The Father is given the words by Jesus that he said we need to celebrate because this, this is my son who was, and then he uses the Greek word, who was dead. But now he is another compound word in the Greek, living, compound in front, again, or even possibly from above. Dead, in the pit, alive, again. The translation says he was lost. The Greek word is so much more powerful. It means to be destroyed. This son was destroyed. His name, his reputation, his history was obliterated from the history of the world. Nobody knew anything of him. He was really lost. But now, now he is found. Paul picks that up, doesn't he? You know, you Ephesians, you were dead in your sin, but you've been brought alive in Christ. There's one more person in the story, isn't there? The two sons, the father, the shepherd, the widow. But there's one more person. It's the storyteller. It's the storyteller. Who is the storyteller? He's the one 
who has left the glory, the adoration, the privilege, the power of heaven. And he's made the trip all the way to the far country to touch us, to call us, to draw us, to embrace us, to show us compassion, to draw us closer to his heart that we might enjoy his person, his presence in our life. Are you there? Are you there? They were three saplings on a mountaintop. And as the saplings stood on that mountaintop, they began to dream about what they would like to be when they grew up. You didn't know the trees of dreams, did you? The first sapling looked up one starry night and saw the stars twinkling in the sky like diamonds. And the first sapling said, when I grew up, I'd like to be a big, beautiful, strong box that holds the precious diamonds and jewels of a family. I'd like to be covered in gold. I'd like to be their treasure chest. The second sapling looked and felt the wind blowing in his branches and saw the stream rushing and babbling its way to the ocean. The second sapling thought, you know what? When I grew up, I'd like to be a great sailing ship that carries kings across the oceans of the world. The third sapling thought, well, I don't have a dream like that. He looked down at the villagers below. He thought, I'd like just to stay right here. I'd like just to grow up tall and strong and point people to God when I grew up. And so the years passed. The rains came. The sun shone. The saplings grew to be strong trees. And one day, the three lumberjacks arrived. The first lumberjack saw the first tree and thought, yeah, perfect, just what I need. Took his axe and whomp. And the first tree smiled. Now I'm going to be built into that wonderful treasure chest. The second lumberjack looked and thought, that one, that one will do the job. Whomp. Down fell the second tree. He smiled. He said, good. Soon I'll be built into a, a great sailing ship. The third lumberjack looked at the third tree and said, well, no big deal. Any tree will really do, but you're the nearest. I'll take you. Whomp. The third tree groaned. His heart fell. His dream of pointing people to God would never be fulfilled. Well, the lumberjack took the first tree to the carpenter, and the first tree thought, this is my day. A treasure box I will be. But that carpenter took that tree and and build it not into a treasure chest, but into, into an old, rough-hewn feeding box, feeding trough for cattle or sheep. And the first tree was, was downtrodden. 
Second tree was taken to the shipyard, very hopeful. But that day they were not making giant sailing ships. They were just making little boats. And he was made into a little boat. So little, so small, he couldn't sail the ocean, not even rivers. They had to put him in a placid lake. And he was used to, to bring home stinky, smelly fish. And the third tree was cut into rough-hewn beams and tossed in the corner of the lumber yard. But one day, one night, golden starlight lit the sky above the first tree. And he watched as a young woman put her firstborn son inside the feeding trough. The husband took his wife's hand and squeezed and said, I wish I'd had time to make a proper manger cradle for our son. And the tree smiled. The first tree realized he was holding the most greatest treasure in all of the world. The second tree one night was hired by a stranger and some of his friends and was to be carried across the lake. But in the middle of the lake, a storm blew up. The winds blew, the waves crashed, and the little tree shuddered and thought, too many people, too many passengers. We're going to go down. We're all going to drown. But then the, the tired stranger who was asleep in the little boat woke up and stood up and spoke to the wind and the waves and said, Shalom, peace. And there was peace. And the little tree smiled because he now knew he was carrying the greatest king. And the third tree tossed in the corner of the lumberyard. One day they came for him they carried him through the streets, and he listened to the angry, jeering crowd, and he listened to their awful, taunting words. And then the soldiers laid a man on him and, and drove nails, spikes through his hands and through his feet. And the third tree felt ugly and harsh and cruel. But then Sunday came, and the sun arose. S-O-N. And the third tree realized it's all changed. It's all changed. History, time, man, woman, God has changed them all. And forever I will point that God is known and loved by people. He's calling you from the far country not to sit comfortably in New City. He's calling you from the far country to be useful for His kingdom wherever you are, whatever you do. You probably have a neighbor who's in the far country. How is that neighbor going to come to the Father? You probably have an associate at work 
You probably have a friend in a class. They're in the far country. How will they come to the Father if you do not speak? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have sent the Son to the far country. I thank you that he's walked the streets of our far country. He's touched. He's spoken. He's called. He's drawn. And Father, I, I ask this morning that you would do that again. You would call us out. That your word would waken us from our deadness and make us to be alive again for you. I pray these things, Father, with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.